Well, last week I shared with you something that my wife did. She came home with Mr. Wonderful, and uh, I thought, you know, probably it was not a bad idea. So I went out and I found Mrs. Wonderful, and uh, I thought you might just want to want to listen to a minute to this beautiful little blonde, Miss Wonderful. I'm just going to keep her in my pocket. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, we've been looking at something in the Scriptures which uh, suggests that God was telling a man that we know very well, a good friend of ours named Hosea, not to marry a woman like Mrs. Wonderful. He says, go out and marry a woman who's an adulteress. Uh, and we say, it doesn't make any sense. And we've seen that it's the scandal of God's grace. His grace is absolutely scandalous. Any man in his right mind is going to be looking for him as wonderful. But God tells Hosea to go out and marry this woman who has had several partners and that they would have children of unfaithfulness. And we saw that there were three of them. The first one was Hosea's son. The next two, we're not quite sure who fathered them. We know they're Gomer's children, but we don't know who the fathers are for sure may very well be that this, these were the children of her adultery. She's a mess. And then when we get to chapter 2, we see why he's telling him to do this. Because this is exactly uh, what Israel has been doing to God. It's what the church has been doing to him. Uh, he would, I'm sure, like to have Ms. Wonderful. But guess what? We ain't it. Uh, we tend to be adulterous. We disobey the law. We... Uh, choose sometimes to follow other gods. We uh, get allured by other ways of life. And there stands our husband, God himself, saying, Hey, Ms. <laughs> Wonderful, come back. And so what God is introducing here through Hosea centuries ago was that the analogy between God and, or the analogy, yeah, the, the relationship between God and his people is analogized in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And the wife pictures us. And Hosea is picturing the Lord. The name Hosea, by the way, just means God saves. And uh, it's the same name as Joshua or Yeshua, Jesus. So Hosea and Jesus actually have the same name. It just means God saves. And who does God save? Oh, He saves nice, clean, wonderful, obedient men and women, boys and girls. No, He saves people who have been unfaithful. And so that ought to make you guys feel really good. Uh, <laughs> me too telling you what, if it weren't for this grace of God, I'd, I wouldn't even be in this business. I wouldn't even bother to be a Christian. It, wouldn't, it would be a futile effort, be a futile enterprise if God is not in the business of saving, saving the adulterous wife. Well, look what happens then in chapter 2, if you will. And the first words we're going to read in verse 2 say, Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her, ch- her husband. So you see he's saying, you are the children of the adulterous wife. You're the children of an adulterous church, and you need to rebuke your mother. Well, I remember reading some years ago, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, at times you do have to rebuke the church. But he, he said, it's kind of like rebuking your mother. Every once in a while, such a thing would have to be done, but woe to the man who enjoys it. And he was talking about these national days of repentance where many preachers just seem to have a blast out of rebuking the church. And he said there ought to be at least some sadness in it. Well, exactly, because the church is our mother. And here uh, God is saying to Hosea, rebuke your mother. And so here we go. And he says, let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked. And make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert 
turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. See, he's saying she not only is pursued by these idols, she goes after them herself. That's how bad she is. Verse 6, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. So he's saying, I'm going to take all of her worship away. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Okay, so let's stop there. What's happening is a, what we call a divine lawsuit. We'll get into this again in chapter 4 in just a few minutes. But God is bringing His people before the court. And He happens not only to be the prosecutor, but the judge. And He's not only the judge, but He's the executive branch as well. He's all of it wrapped up in one. And He is bringing her before Him to sue her. And so this, this is a typical prophetic technique. We'll see it on a couple of other occasions in the Minor Prophets. But Hosea, God is using Hosea to bring the people into court. And what does he do in these first 13 verses? He charges, convicts, and sentences the people. You can see the charges here. The charge is that she's chasing after an idol. Ah, thank you. Small problem. Rocky, you're so good. Everybody else just sitting there looking at me. Look at this. Rocky. Thank you. So, he charges, convicts, and sentences the people. And you can see what's happening. The people are worshiping other idols. And here's basically what they're saying. They're saying, oh, we, we still love Jehovah. We still worship Him too. But all the people around us, they're, they're having these big festivals to Baal and Ashtaroth. And man, the parties are just great. And, you know... Uh, we call it Mardi Gras. And we just go down and just have a big old time. And, you know, no, I mean, everybody understands this is not my, my religion you know, to, to live in this kind of a lifestyle and so on. I just, I just like to have fun with everybody. I just picked Mardi Gras as an example. Of, it, was a, it was a big party. And Baal and Ashtaroth put on great parties. And at their parties, things happen that a lot of men really like, like nakedness and sex and drinking and carousing. I mean, these were the big parties. So if you were just going to be a prude and be a Jehovah worshiper, uh, you weren't going to have a whole lot of fun. So the people, they said, look, we're, we're Christians. I mean, we, we worship Jehovah. We're, we're Jews. We're real believers. But uh, we just like to have fun with the other people, too. We want to get along with our neighbor. And so they were really getting along with their neighbor. And they thought that it really didn't make that much difference. And, but when God puts the relationship in this kind of analogy, He's letting them see how it feels to Him. That it's not just that they had a little intellectual burp in their thinking. It's not just that they slipped a little bit one day. No, it's that they chose other lovers and they are denying Him as the husband and they are being adulterous to Him. And some of you have had this happen to you. And what does it do to you? It's absolutely absolute devastating. You marry a woman who walks up to that aisle with you and tells you she's going to be faithful and loving wife as long as you both shall live, and then you find her in the arms of another man? I mean, that's happened to some of you. And you know how that feels. And that's the reason God is intentionally using this analogy. He's bringing us into court and saying, you have committed adultery. So when we choose the ways of other gods 
because we want to get along with people or because we want to do what everybody else is doing or because we just want to have some fun. What we're really doing is committing adultery against the Lord. It's very personal and it's very offensive. And that's what's going on uh, in this chapter. Then look at the weird sort of thing that follows up. We, we talked about this last time. We get these charges, convictions, and sentences, and then he's going to promise restoration. Look at the very next verse. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of Egypt, and so on. And the, the, the earth will return its grain and its wine. And if you look at verse 23, I will plant her myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Beautiful restoration. So we have a child named uh, no mercy. We have a child named not my people. And he says, now you're going to have mercy and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. That's how gracious the Lord is. Even after we'll go through some discipline because we committed adultery. Remember, the judgments that are promised, they come in the short run. The restoration that's promised typically comes in the long run. So both are true. So you're not going to escape the judgments of God. He's still going to discipline His children. And for those who have professed their faith in the Lord, but really don't trust in the Lord, they just did it as a social convention, a lot of people do that. I did that uh, at one point in my life. I joined the church as a social convention. Well, what happens is if I continue to commit adultery against the Lord, never really give Him my heart and receive the forgiveness of Christ, not only will I be disciplined, I could be destroyed forever. So those who are signing up, as it were, in the church and professing their faith for, for Christ but in Christ, but have no intention of following Him, you better watch out. It's really a dangerous place to be. Because God will uh, often purge His people of the hypocrisy that's in the church. And then for those who do believe, uh, who have put their trust in Christ and have received His forgiveness, they will certainly be disciplined. And uh, nobody likes to be disciplined. The Bible says that, but, it, but the Bible also says a good father always will discipline his children. Now, last week, you may remember... We discussed the fact that what a prophet does, including Hosea, is he doesn't dream up some new standards that God wants to apply in his age. And he doesn't dream up new solutions. He will go back to the Pentateuch. He's a Bible-thumping evangelist. He will go back to the Pentateuch and simply remind the people of what the law of God says. And he'll remind them of the blessings and curses that are in uh, the scriptures uh, of his own day. And so look with me for just a moment at the curses and blessings in Hosea 2. You have these uh, listed in your paperwork there. But look, look at these curses. Stripped naked, right out of Deuteronomy 28. Thirsty, you can see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 28. God's love not shown, Leviticus 27. A curse of being walled in, Deuteronomy 28. No grain or wine, Deuteronomy 28. No wool or linen, Deuteronomy 28. Lewdness exposed right there in the same chapter. Celebration stopped, Leviticus. Vines and fig trees ruined, Deuteronomy 28. Wild animals, both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So you see, all through that chapter, although it's put in very poetic, relevant, contemporary language for the people of Hosea's own day, uh, it goes back hundreds of years uh, to Moses, uh, 800 years before, uh, when Moses was giving the law of the covenant uh, in Sinai. The same thing is true of the blessings. You get that he woos them in the desert. I don't have that one. Vineyards given back, Leviticus 26, hope restored. They sing, called God my husband, right out of Leviticus 26. Baals removed, Deuteronomy 4. Covenant removed, uh, that should, that's renewed, I'm sorry. Covenant renewed, Leviticus 26. War abolished, the Lord acknowledged, Skies, earth, grain, blessed, and God's love will be shown. All of that is out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So this gives us a hint for our own day. What is really needed is not so much innovation, but what is needed is also not just status quo. What is needed is a radical change 
based on the ancient truths that have been revealed thousands of years ago. So we don't need some innovation. We also don't need to stay just as we are. We need to change and turn away from what we're doing based on the Word of God that was given to Hosea, that very first verse in chapter 1, thousands of years ago. That's what's happening in Hosea. Now, let's look at chapter 3, which, as I think I mentioned last time, Jim Boyce says is the second greatest chapter in the whole Bible. (laughs) Because it tells us a story that is absolutely marvelous and so much like our, our Lord Himself. This, this, these five verses are going to tell us about God and His prophet by back to prostituting wife. So, let's get the story. Uh, God told Hosea to go marry a woman who's an adulteress in the first place. He marries her. She has children probably by him and somebody else. She is chasing other lovers, absolutely insulting him, breaking his heart. And now look what the Lord tells him to do in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. What, Lord? Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> so he says, you think it's impossible to marry an adulteress? Someone who's been unfaithful? What do you think about me? Who am I dealing with? Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. That's about six ounces. And about a homer and a lethic of barley. And that's about ten bushels. That's, that's a little bit more than she was worth, if you ask me. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in these last days. Gentlemen, let me say, of all the lessons we will study together this year, this may be the most important lesson that you will study this year. It may be the most important truth that you consider in all of your life in this chapter. For two reasons. First of all, the chapter shows us who we are. We're men created in God's image. We are the crown of His creation. We are beautiful in His sight. When He made us, He said after day six, It is very good. He said everything else is good. But when he made human beings, he said it is very good. So human beings are lofty. What they are, they're kings and queens, princes and princesses, by the fact that they're made in his image. But there's another thing about human beings we have to know, and that is that we're kings and queens in rebellion, or princes and princesses in rebellion against the king of all kings. So we've taken all of our gifts, all of our beauty, if you will, all of our intelligence, all of the goodness that we had, all the power to affect cause and effect in this world, all the power to reign and have dominion over the creation. And we have turned it against the king. That's a very important message because unless you see that about yourself, unless you really honestly see you are the adulterous wife or the children of the adulterous wife, this is your heritage. And this is the way you have been naturally thinking and speaking and acting, even the best of us, and there are some very fine men in this room, very fine men, who can't remember a day when they were really being a rascal like I was in many parts of, times of my life. Some of you have just been straight as an arrow right out of the womb. I know this. With the best of you, I'm telling you, you're exactly the way I've just described. And you have something to add to it. You think you're pretty good. And that keeps you from understanding how you're going to build a relationship with the Lord. This first prophet that we're dealing with is not talking about so much what we're supposed to do in society. We'll get to that. There are many things that we should be doing as men. And these prophets are going to address everything and more that you can think of. But the place where we're starting is the first of the minor prophets. And I'm grateful to the church in millennia past who put Hosea first in the list. 
Because the first thing we're dealing with is your spiritual experience, your relationship with the Lord. And it starts with this, knowing what you have done with the incredibly fantastic gifts that He's given you as a human being made in His image. And when you sinned, when you did that which was wrong, you committed adultery, as it were, unfaithfulness to the One who made you. That's the starting point for us to build a relationship with the Lord. Because this relationship is based on what we call grace. And it is scandalous. Just as it would be scandalous if uh, next week you read that one of our elders has had a wedding here at Second Presbyterian Church. And he has chosen as his bride, dressed in white, the local prostitute. No, the head of the whorehouse here in Memphis. And he's marrying her and spread all over the paper. This is the elder's wife. No repentance involved. Just married her. No announcement about any change in her life. Just marrying a whore. That'd be a scandal, wouldn't it? I mean, even in our day. Well, okay, it'd be a scandal at second. Maybe not a scandal in, in, the, in the world. But it would be a scandal. Uh, well, I think it'd be a scandal at second. I don't know. That would be a scandal in most of our churches. And what we've got to realize is that that is the reason the Lord is using this analogy because it is a scandal for Him to select us as His bride. And so often we think, you know, this, this is a good deal because I'm getting a lot out of this relationship with God. You know, He is too. I mean, He gets me after all. You know, another spokesman for Him. And, uh, you know, after all, I do have some influence. People do listen to me, you know, we say about ourselves. This is not a bilateral deal. It's a scandal. Uh, among all the moralists in the world, it's a scandal. And let me tell you something. I'm quite convinced because Paul says something, he alludes to this in Ephesians chapter 3, that the angels are scandalized. Uh, we are told that they look in wonder at this salvation. I think they're looking over the parapet of heaven and saying, What? <laughs> Jesus, no! <laughs> Can't you find somebody else to marry? I think it is heaven's scandal too. So let's realize how we got into this in the first place. Not because we're marrying an equal partner. Not because we're equally yoked. We're not equally yoked. It's a scandal. That's the first thing in developing your relationship with God. And some of you maybe have been around the periphery of the Gospel and been around the periphery of the church and you know, you've been involved in a few things and tried to help out and be a good citizen and be a faithful member of a church somewhere or kind of participate, make some offerings every once in a while and, and live a good life. And I commend you for that. I think that's, I think that's good. But that's not what Hosea is talking about. Hosea is talking about if you want to enter into the, the essence of this whole thing and get from the perimeter down to the core, get from you know, a, a hat-tipping relationship with God to one where it's really intimate, then you're going to have to start with a knowledge of yourself and enter into this scandal. And, hey, look, I know it's painful. I remember, I remember first thinking about these things in my young 20s. When I was not a Christian, I grew up in the church. I was around the periphery too. But I hadn't really given my heart to Christ. And I remember hearing a little bit about these things. And they were, they were a scandal to me. They were atrocious to me. I didn't want any part of it because of my own pride. Well, and I didn't believe it either. Why should I, why should I enter into a scandal I don't believe in? Why do, I have to, why do I have to be a scandal if I don't even believe it? So if you don't believe it, I understand. But I'm telling you, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the reason for the analogy. Is this the way you enter into the relationship? you recognize I don't belong here by rights. What I, what I deserve is to be held up before God and all the angels as an unfaithful, whoring person that I am in my mind at least. And some of us have done those kinds of things even physically. And whether you have or not, every human being has to realize if you're going to have a relationship with God, it starts with that sort of humility. But the second thing we see in the relationship, this is the reason we start here in the fall with your spiritual relationship. First of all, you have to understand it would be a scandal for God to be intimate with me. 
But secondly, you have to realize that's exactly what He intends to do with you. Nothing less than an intimate marriage where He pledges His name to you. My wife's last name is Wilson. And for those of you who have had uh, your children get married, uh, my, my son, third son married a young lady. And uh, she, uh, this day, these days, that's a, that's a plus, married a young lady. Uh, he, he, he picked that up in church, I think. Uh, you, marry, you marry someone of the opposite gender. So he married a young lady. She's a school teacher. And uh, they've been married three months. And just the other day, she was, saying, she was talking about something her student said to her. And, she, and the student said, Ms. Wilson, da da da. And I thought, golly, sure, her last name's Wilson, too. I hadn't thought about it yet. <laughs> it just, it, I don't know if that's ever hit you like that, but you, you have your name and it's given to someone. And of course, it gives you great delight, doesn't it, to give someone your name. Uh, and it gives God great delight. It gives you His name. And uh, for those of you who are following Christ, your name is Christianos, a little Christ. You're, you're given the name of Christian. And so you've given His name, and then you're given the pledge of His protection. He will guard you. It's your husband. This is what we do for our wives. And if you're dating, it's what you do for your girlfriend. Listen, let me tell you something. If you're dating somebody and you're walking down Memphis uh, and there's danger, you just gave up your life. You, when you took that woman out, you pledged to her and her family that you'll protect her with your life. Do you realize that? Men sometimes intuitively know this, but if you take a woman under your care, you have just then risked your own life to protect her. If you marry a woman... Paul says it. You, you, you give your life for her. So you are laying your life on the line. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm, uh, I remember one time traveling through the streets of New York back in the days when it wasn't so safe. And I had my wife with me. And there are just certain places I'd turn around and go the other way because I'd realize, you know, now I'm going to, I'm going to, there's going to be two of us I have to protect, not just one. And so, you know, if you're in a place of danger, you realize your life is on the line. You, you may as well get ready to give it up to protect that woman. And that's the honor of being husband. The word husband means to care for a vineyard. You husband a vineyard. You take care of it. Pastor means to care for sheep. It's the same sort of thing. You're caring for another. And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. A husband will lay down his life for his wife. And that is what God did for you. He takes someone who is a scandal and brings you into an intimate relationship with Him And He's the one who pays the price for it. Let's take a look at it and you'll see the analogy. This is way before Jesus Christ comes on the scene. This is 800 years before Christ. It's actually showing us the analogy of the nature of the relationship between God that's always been there from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. First of all, look, there's a price to be paid. And it is paid in verses 1 and 2. He says, go show your love to your wife. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So verse 2, I bought her. He paid for her. And so why did He pay for her? Because she had been sold to other men. And He had to go pay the price. He had already married her. Why did He have to pay for her? He had to pay for her twice. He had to take her the first time to be his wife and protect her and provide for her. She is unfaithful to him. He goes and buys her again. Pays twice for her. It's like the little fellow, you know, who has made his little sailboat, you know, out of a little popsicle stick and and a little piece of bark and a little napkin that made his sail. And the sailboat went down the river and, and he lost it. A few days later, he's going by an old store you know, where they barter things, and there's his little sailboat in the window. And he goes in and asks, Sir, how much is it? And he says, Oh, it's five cents. So he pays a nickel for it, and he looks at that sailboat and he says, You know, you're mine twice. I made you in the first place, and then I bought you again. And that's the way it is with, with God. He made you in the first place, and He made you for a relationship. He put you in the Garden of Eden with all the privileges. And there he would walk like the king of kings in the cool of the night who would delight himself in his garden and he would walk in the garden and there would be his royal family, prince and princess. And he could relate to his royal family in his royal garden in the cool of the evening like every ministering king would do. And he would love that relationship. And we were naked and unashamed and everything was transparent. We had a clear relationship with the Lord. And then what happened? We decided to go the other way. 
But before we even got out of that royal garden, he made, he made a promise to us that he would send a seed from our generation who would conquer the devil who was the problem in the first place. That, yes, uh, he, would, he would hurt us. He would do damage to us, but we would crush his head, which is exactly what Christ did on the cross, crushed his head. So in the very beginning, when we, when we were unfaithful, God made a plan to get us back. And so we're his twice. He made us and he redeemed us. So the price is paid. Secondly, the path is laid. In verse 3, you noticed that he says, uh, he told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will live with you. You say, what good is that going to do? He told her the first time. Look what she did. i tell you what good it does. She's lived a rough life. She's realized that you can try to have intimacy with other people through drunken, carousing, sexually illicit relationships, but it's not really love. It's abuse. And she had to learn the hard way. And there's some guys in this room who've had to learn the hard way. That when you go that way, contrary to, to what you know is in your conscience to begin with, and secondly, you find it confirmed in the Bible, there's an empty place to go. It has some short-term pleasure, and that's the problem with it. It's, it is alluring because it has short-term pleasure. But it's long, in the long run, it's empty. And you know you've been used as a prostitute. And that it's not satisfying, and it does not fill your soul. So this is what good it does. God shows you that it gives you a second chance, a third chance, a tenth chance, a one millionth chance. God never runs out of chances of people who sincerely turn to Him from their idolatry and going the other way. He's always there. You may be faithless. I may be faithless. But He, says Paul to Timothy, is faithful. And He is loving and forgiving. And this scandalous story that seems impossible to us. What man would do this? Only a man under direction from God to picture how God treats his rebellious children. That's the only man who would do it. And Hosea only did it because the Lord told him to, to picture his love for his people. And so what you get is, you come back to the Lord, and he doesn't say, okay, so you've been out there having a little fun, have you? All right, we're going to put you up in the tool shed. And uh, you're going to sleep on the concrete. And we want you to work from sun up to sundown. And when you have finally shown that you mean business in coming back, then we'll think about letting you live in the house and restoring your privileges. That's the way I'd do it. <laughs> it's not the way the Lord does it. He says, I love you. And I'm going to put trust in you. And here, let's, let's take the high road right from the beginning. Okay, you've come back. And I assure you I love you. And I pledge myself to you as husband. And here's the way we ought to live. Just be faithful to me. And I'm going to be your God. Don't be your husband. It's just that simple. Do you realize how simple this is? You've been out there doing all this stuff, thinking all these things. Some of you have strayed spiritually, used to be in the church, used to be in Bible study, used to get it on with the Lord and have a great relationship, and you've just drifted. I'm telling you, it's just so simple. You come back, you admit that you're the adulterous uh, part of this relationship, uh, and you're the, you're the problem. There's distance between you. Guess who moved? It was you. It was not the Lord. He's there. You come back to Him and He says, I receive you on the basis of what my Son did for you because I bought you back. I paid for you. And you say, yes, Lord, you did pay for me. And I'm grateful for what you paid. And then He simply says to you, let's get it on again. Let's get it going. It's that simple, gentlemen. And because you and I think moralistically, because you and I wouldn't take someone back like that, because you and I would put them in the tool shed and make them earn their way back, we assume the Lord's going to do the same thing. And that's not what He does. His scandalous grace will surprise you over and over and over again. I've been a minister for over 25 years. I sin every day. And every day I'm amazed by the scandal of His forgiveness toward me that He continues to be a faithful husband to me and continues to ennoble my life by saying, let's go this direction, Wilson. You are over here. Let's get going over here. I'm just amazed that He keeps talking to me. I had given up on me a long time ago. I'm not Mr. Wonderful. And neither are you. So it, this is the scandal of the relationship that we own who we are and we believe who He is. He really is this gracious. So He lays the path. 
And the path is laid and the plan is made. And what is the plan? The plan is this. That you will, you have lived many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stone, without ephod or idol. Uh, or rather, that is what you will do. And you, you will uh, face hard discipline, uh, as has been mentioned here. But then in the last days, you will return to, the, to Him. You will seek the Lord. You will seek David. And you will come trembling to the Lord and to His blessings. This is the plan. It's already laid out. You don't have to dream it up. If you come to the Lord, you're going to return. You're going to seek Him. He's going to be the delight of your heart. You're going to seek David, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the Son of David. You're going to seek Jehovah and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to come trembling with joy and reverence to Him and to His blessings. That's the plan. It's already laid out. You already know what you're going to do if you come back. It's right there for you. If you want to come back this morning, you screwed up yesterday. You want to come back this morning, there's the plan. He's already paid for it. The price is paid. The path is laid. You're going to belong to Him. The plan is right there. Real simple. And so you have eight centuries before Jesus Christ, a really simple plan. Now, let me just share with you a story that Chuck Swindoll told years ago that to me kind of summarizes this whole idea of grace, and then we'll look at these next chapters. Swindoll puts it this way. He says, what if by some great tragedy someone took your daughter, your little girl, six years old, and abused her in every way imaginable and then sliced her up and buried her sliced body? And then about a month later, they apprehend the man who did this and they throw him in uh, in prison. And at his trial, you're thinking, you know, I've really got two choices here. I can try to take a weapon in my hand in the courtroom, take that knife out and stab this man until I kill him with my own hands for what he did. Or I can let the system handle it through through the civil justice system, criminal justice system. So Swindoll says those are the two choices you're usually faced with. Are you going to look for some way to wreak personal vengeance for what someone did to your little girl? Or you can hand it over to the criminal justice system. But Swindoll says, what what if you did this? What if you went to see this man in prison yourself? And you walked down that hall with all those iron doors and you come to his cell They let you in and close the door behind you. And there you are, just you and him. And you sit down with him and you tell him that you forgive him. And then you adopt him as your own son. Swindoll says, that is grace rather than justice. And that, my dear friends, is exactly what God did for you. Our sins killed His one and only Son whom He cherishes, whom He loved with all of His heart. And my sins put Him on that cross. And God, obviously, if He were like me, would turn to justice with His own hands. That's what I would do. But instead, He comes into my prison, He tells me I'm forgiven, and adopts me as His Son. That's the scandal of what we're talking about, dear friends. This this is what it means to be a believer in Christ, is that you've received the price that was paid. You've received that as a gift. You have acknowledged your own need, and you have let Him love you. And a lot of men cannot enter into a relationship, a close relationship with God. I've talked to zillions of you. I know my own heart. And here's the reason. We're so damned proud. And that word was used intentionally because it is damnable. We are so damned proud that we only want to be loved because we deserve to be loved. And you cannot enter into a relationship with a living God with that pride. You cannot do it because you are not worthy of being loved by Him. You were at creation. You were in the way you're made in His image, but you surrendered that. 
Now you come into relationship with Him not on the basis of creation alone. Creation, yes, but not creation alone. Creation and grace because He took you the first time, but He bought you the second time. And if you do not enter in on that basis, you can't enter in because of pride and arrogance. So this is what the first three chapters of Hosea are teaching us at the very beginning of our study of the prophets. The strongest prophetic message you'll find in the Bible is this one of returning to the Lord on the basis of scandalous grace poured out for you at His cost, not at yours. And that's the only way you can have a relationship with God. It's the only way. Jesus said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me because He is the price that was paid. You say, I'd like some other price. I'm sorry. God determines the price. And He determines who's going to pay the price. And He sent His one and only cherished Son to pay the price. And He determined the price. We don't have a right to say what the price is. As much as you may want to do that. And as much as you may want to include all kinds of people around the world apart from Christ. The reason you can't, there has to be a price paid. And it has to be the price that God puts on it. And it has to be the way that He pays it. I just saw an article. I don't know if you saw this. It was in the Commercial Appeal, I think. I think it was Commercial Appeal. Just two days ago where the, the chapel leader for the Washington Nationals was suspended Tuesday after a flap over comments about Jews. And some of you may be Jewish in this room. We've all, we're all close to very, very important Jewish friends, and we care about them and want them to be in heaven with us too. But what we have to say to very important and loved friends, whether they're Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, anybody else, there's one way. You've got to put your faith in the price that God paid through Christ instead of dreaming one up for yourself. Well, let me tell you what happened to this, this guy, John Moeller. He will not be allowed access to the clubhouse while the team investigates. The Nationals have asked the Christian Ministry Baseball Chapel, which appoints and oversees the volunteers, to provide a replacement. According to an article published Sunday in the Washington Post, Nationals outfielder Ryan Church said he asked Moeller if Jews are doomed because they do not believe in Jesus, and Church said Moeller just nodded. And that's the reason he got canned. Well, I understand that's not politically correct to say that anybody would be doomed by not following their religion. But we're all doomed. Christians are doomed if they just go to church and don't put their trust in the provision that God has made in Christ. They're doomed too. Because we're adulterous people. We've been unfaithful. Of course we're doomed. Any non-scandalous person knows that. You go to court and you get what you deserve. Except for the scandalous grace of God. And this is the overlay, not only on Hosea, but this is the overlay on all of, Hosea, on all of the minor prophets. Okay, let's turn to chapter 4. We've got a few minutes to get started. And I intentionally... Got us one week behind, so don't worry. <laughs> we'll dig out of this hole next week. Now we want to look at the severity of God's grace. First of all, you look at the scandal of it. You're going to build a relationship based on grace, not on justice. We passed that. We could have in the Garden of Eden built a relationship. Wouldn't this be nice? If we could build a relationship with God based on justice and he, we have an intimate relationship because He constantly gives us what we deserve. Now, that would be really cool. And that's what Adam and Eve had. But when they surrendered their own righteousness, that way of relating intimately to God is gone. Can't get there from here. So He provides this way. It's called grace. It's scandalous because He's taking people who should be punished, who should be mashed out and rubbed out, and, and He brings us to life. So we look at the scandal of the grace in the first place, but now there's a severity to it. Once He brings you into this gracious relationship, we saw that there, He lays out a plan. And He says, this is the way, walk ye in it. So this is not sloppy agape. This is not some licentious sort of relationship. Oh, you like adultery? Come on, let's get married and we'll have an open marriage. You have sex with whomever you want to have sex? I'll have sex with whomever I want to have sex. That is not what's going on here. He's saying, you've been adulterous? I've not. I've been waiting for you. Now, you come on into an intimate relationship with me and you're no longer going to be adulterous. We've got a plan for your life. Here we go. And when you get off that plan, I'm going to whack you. Because I'm your dad. 
And I love the daylights out of you. And when you go over this way, it scares the bejabbers out of me. I'm going to bring you back. That's just what you do with your kids when they're four years old. And we're like four-year-old little rebels who just go off on our own way. And God's going to keep us on track. There's a plan there. And when you start getting off that track, if you really belong to him, says the writer of Hebrews, he said, if you're not a child, if you're a bastard, you don't get disciplined. But if you're a legitimate son, you get disciplined. (laughs) You better believe it. You're going to get it. Because he loves you. And he's going to keep you on this plan that leads to blessing in your life. He wants you to be blessed. So there's a severity to it. Now, first of all, we're going to see there is once again an indictment. You'll see this pattern again from chapter 4 through verse 7 in chapter 5. God indicts His hypocritical people. So if you belong to Him and you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth, don't think that He doesn't notice it. You may be fooling somebody else. You may be fooling yourself. You ain't fooling Him. He doesn't like it. And He doesn't like it for His glory. And He doesn't like it for your welfare either. So He will indict you. He'll once again bring you into court. If you look at chapter 4, look at this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Okay? And if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he likewise says, Hear. Hear this, you priests. Now, this word here, we won't go into it, but it'd be kind of like this. You know, before the judge comes into the courtroom, Hear ye, hear ye. That's it. So this is an announcement. The judge is convening court. Hear ye, hear ye. And then notice in chapter 4, the next phrase, because the Lord has a charge. The Hebrew word is reeve. Here you go again. It's a lawsuit. And God, the prophet's going to use the lawsuit analogy once again to show us what the charges are all about. So we know the gracious story. And isn't this interesting? This is exactly the way you've got to think. If you're going to deal with the thundering law of God in your life, and this is one of the keys to a successful spiritual experience, is somehow being able to listen to the law of God without getting royally ticked off and say, oh, to heck with it all. I'm going this other direction. I can't do this anyway. How do you get this law into your life? You go through the whole story first. And that's just what we've done. We've been to the end of the story where God buys you back and takes you in as an unfaithful person. So you know you're saved. You know He's gracious. And it is only when you know that God is gracious to you and has forgiven all your sins that you can listen to this stuff and benefit from it. Otherwise, if you're not real sure whether you belong to Him and you're hearing all this lawsuit stuff against God, you're saying, hey, let up, will you? That's, that's basically what a man will do. Let up. Chill out. You know, come on, let's love each other. Let's not get into this law stuff, you know, this morality, righteousness stuff. Because down deep inside, you don't want to hear it because you're not really securing your relationship with God through Christ. You don't know for sure that price has been paid for you and that you've received it. But if you go through Hosea 1 through 3 and you get the scandal of His grace and you believe that He has loved you, you believe that He's brought you back today, He's going to take you back tomorrow, He's going to take you back the next day, then you can get into this spin cycle, so to speak, And you can listen to this law again, which just thunders from heaven and reveals again His glory and all of His righteousness and holiness. Once again, lets you see how far away you are from that standard. And you can actually, get this, enjoy it. I do. I enjoy, I love the law of God. Why? Because it doesn't condemn me and send me to hell. Now, the law will condemn people and send them to hell. And I'm very, very concerned about that. But it's not going to condemn me and send me to hell. Let me tell you why. Because it condemned Jesus Christ on the cross. And He's already paid the price of hell for me. So I am not worried about the consequences of the law. What I am is I'm concerned about the glory of God in my life. If He's done this for me and He loves me so much... I've been won by love. You see in chapter 2, he says in verse 14, I'm going to take you and woo you in the desert. I'm going to win you. I'm not going to just pay the price. I'm going to get your heart. And that's what he's saying to you. He's not just going to pay the price in Christ. He's going to get your heart. And when you know that he's got your heart, is when you know you can listen to this lawsuit 
and have His glory and His holiness and His righteousness revealed. And it spurs you on instead of sending you down. Because that's when you know that He has paid the price for you and you're free of it. And now you're ready to hear of all His holiness and of His pleasure for your life. Knowing you're not going to fulfill it perfectly. But also knowing that you have every intention of giving giving it your best shot. That's the reason that you've got to get the whole story first. That's the reason that Hosea, in giving us this prophecy, just like an orchestral overture, he gives us the overture which plays a little bit of all the pieces first, and then you go back to the beginning of the symphony. So you have an overture, and one through three is the overture. You're saved. Chill out. Don't sweat it in terms of your own condemnation. But now, listen to the law of God. He's a holy God. The Father who loves you and has taken you back over and over and over again is perfect in His righteousness. And He wants His perfection to be revealed with His sons. And so having been won by His love, now let's go about the Father's business. And the only way we can do that, as we'll see next week and the weeks ahead, is by listening lovingly to the law of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful overture which is the story of Your scandalous grace for us. And we acknowledge that if we were building a relationship with someone else, we would do it by law. Quid pro quo. Justice. Dealing with our neighbor as we would want to be dealt with and all the other ways in which we develop relationships. But Lord, You've broken all the rules and You have scandalously bought us back And even though we continue to fail, You have entrusted Your Word to us. And we pray that as we go through this day and through these studies in the weeks ahead, we will listen, having been won back and having given our hearts to You anew and having known that You'll forgive us and love us and adopt us. We now, Lord, would listen. What do You want us to do? And may we be men like that throughout this day and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.